0: Children of the world, parents of the world,
1: this is for you. I'm Rowena. And I'm April. We are best friends and moms to five young athletes and sisters to Olympic champions. We have a mission to inspire our kids and your kids through the stories of champions.
2: Who am I? I am a champion. Who am I? I am a champion. Who am I? I am a champion.
0: Okay, champions, settle in. This is going to be a good story. Today we have Summer Sanders, who is forever an Olympic champion. She was the darling of the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona. As a 19 year old bringing home two golds, a silver and a bronze. She was one of the most decorated athletes at the time and is one of the most well-known athletes. She is pure joy. She's smart. She's magnetic. um, And she gets seared into your soul. You guys, I can't wait for you to hear from her. She's a mother of two. Sky and Spider are her kids. She's a sports commentator, a television personality, an actress, a marathon runner, an author. There's probably more that I've missed, but she's also a cricket spitting champion. (laughs) Welcome, Summer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's really awesome, Rowena, that you found that one because that is a claim to fame. That was from my Nickelodeon days. Thanks for having me, awesome women.
0: Oh, thank you, Summer. You know, you know this story of mine, but our listeners don't. You are actually a huge part of my own Olympic journey. You became seared in my mind forever when I watched you in Australia on TV. Um, You know, and along with the rest of the world, I fell in love with you. I was a swimmer at the time, so you really mattered to me then. Um, Thank you for being you. How how does that feel? You're so cute.
2: (laughs) We have to explain to everyone that Aussies are swimmers. And then oh, yeah. they do whatever other sport they're going to to do. But really authentically, in the core of your DNA as an Aussie, you're a swimmer. And you guys love the sport of swimming. And so what Rowena is talking about is the Perth uh, World Championships that were in January of 1990. And um, I'm sure that Rowena remembers the name Haley Lewis and Susie O'Neill because they literally are superstars in Australia to this day. But the Aussies, when you have a major swimming meet in Australia, you feel like rock stars and you guys love swimming and you guys love to party. And those two things came together at our venue in Perth and my parents quickly fell in love with the fact that you could, you could have a nice ice cold beverage with a little shrimp cocktail on the side. Um, that never, that doesn't happen in the United States, you know? So, uh, so yes, I, Rowena, Rowena and I met up because both of our kids ski raced and she came up to me and it was, if anybody comes up to me to ski race and wants to talk about swimming, my heart lights up. So that was a really fun moment. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that I interviewed your amazing sister and she tried to teach me how to snowboard, but you know, that's for that's another story altogether.
0: That's right. And I was telling April, I think I became so starstruck when I realized like summer, wait, summer Sanders, these summer sanders, and we printed out a picture of you and I made you sign it. I think I was
1: like <laughs> thirty or something, <laughs> like a kid.
0: Um, oh Roe was,
1: was telling me that story. I was like, wait, do you still have that? Let's find that. <laughs> I do, I'll get it.
2: <laughs> it was from Brian head. I think that's where we were. we were at Brian head at our kids like championship, yeah. you know, when they were like, I don't know, four, that awesome Brian head right. there was hardly any snow at that time. And you're at 10,000 feet and you can barely breathe. Uh, Oh, the joys of parenthood, the joys of following along on <laughs> our kids journey in sports. It's so magical and, and not glamorous and awesome and perfect. I they love it.
1: Can you take us back actually? Um, and, tell everyone like how did you even get into swimming like how old were you and how that kind of evolve
2: yeah i grew up in northern california so just outside of sacramento in what used to be a small town of roseville california it's actually grown uh, so much uh that my town is actually now technically granite bay as opposed to roseville as everywhere in california it's just grown up the the weather was ridiculously hot in the summertime and we were talking like 115 degrees So everyone similar to Australia, like everyone just swam. We were all in summer rec league. It was really, really fun swimming, nothing serious. It was all about candy and swimming and hanging out with your friends. And so my brother uh, was gonna join the swim team when you're supposed to, like six and a half. And I said to my mom, could I go try out? Cause I wanted to be just like him. Well, I was four and she said, "I, I mean, I don't know. So we went to this, we went to tryouts and the coaches said, boy, we'd really love for her to be six but if she can swim a lap at the pool, she's on the team. And so I did. And that was it. And, you know, I loved the idea that I made it. I loved the idea that I was around my brother and all his cool friends. Um, But I was really scared in my first races. And it's just a gentle reminder for every day of my life, even now as a 49 year old, that uh, if it doesn't scare you, then you need to try something new. I love this idea of, of if it scares you, you should do it. And that's when I learned it at the age of four.
0: Wow. I, I love how you bring it in just life with sport because that is one of our missions with this podcast to just help the kids in it realize like it's so much bigger than the sport they're doing, so much bigger than what they're learning, the lessons, the wins, the failures. It all adds up to you know, becoming the person that you are. So Summer, you were four, you were like, were you a prodigy in swimming? Like, did that quickly happen? Or?
2: Well, you know, back in the seventies, we just didn't throw that word around, (laughs) you know, there was no gifted and talented in school and there was no prodigy talk. You just sort of showed up. And yes, there were some kids that were, that had much more natural talent than others, but Uh, I think my my mom looking back on it could probably tell you that I was a prodigy, Mm -hmm. but you know, I, and I'm sure similar to your, your guys' sports, you saw other kids with equal talent and then some just took it to the next level and others didn't. And so there's a lot that goes into the cocktail and the recipe itself that creates a champion. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not just you're given everything. And now what do you do with it? It's, it's a process. It's a baking process. There's a mixing process. There are hiccups Mm -hmm. within it. Um, but yeah, I think I had a a lot of natural talent to begin with. And I think natural talent took me to probably age 14 or so. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have to decide to show up. There's a, a huge decision that's not technically right in front of you, but there is that moment when you have to decide, hmm, I maybe have to really, really work hard. And that's, you know, there's a yes and a no. I don't want to, or I do want to. And it's not easy. So did you have one of
1: those defining moments that you can remember that when you made that decision? You do? Okay. I'd love yeah, to hear it. I do. I do.
2: Yeah, because I, um, going back really quickly to what Rowena was talking about earlier, being scared and doing it in those kind of moments in life, it is good for kids and parents to recognize the health of encouraging your kids to do something that's scary. When I was four and I stood on the blocks for my very first race, I started crying and my mom stopped the meet and came over to me and said, you don't have to do this, but if you want to just look at the other end of the pool, like your your friends are there, your brother's there, your teammates, your brother's teammates. Oh, I mean, want to be around my brother's friends. It was like the joy. I felt like I made it in life. And so somewhere in this speech, my she said, my face just turned from sheer terror to this look of determination. And so I decided I was going to do it. I belly flopped in and I, you know, paddled my way down to the other end. And I quickly felt that feeling of accomplishment. And I think that entire process is what I became addicted to. And I learned it at such a young age and I feel so grateful that I did. Mm -hmm. I didn't win my Mm -hmm. race. I didn't break records. There was nothing outstanding about my first race, but the most outstanding part of it was that I became addicted to accepting the fear of trying something, going for it and doing it, And then finishing and feeling the sense of accomplishment. I mean, I got out of that pool and I was walking taller. My belly was sticking way out. I was like, I am the bleep, you know? Um, (laughs) I love this story. Yeah. So that stuck with me. But conversely, it also sticks with me if I don't choose to do something and that feeling of regret later going, oh, I should have done that, or I should have tried that, or I can't believe I backed down from that. So don't back down from challenges. Push yourself through. It's not about winning, it's not about perfection, it's about making sure that you're consistently improving on your journey. So now, April, Mm -hmm. going to your question about when did I know that I was at my natural talent point and I needed to uh, push through? I, and I was 14, I was a pain in the butt to my parents. So any kids out there listening or any parents that have that 14, 15 year old girl, I'm in it right now with my own daughter. Like it's the real deal. And I gave my mom a run for her money. Um, I was still swimming while I was still making national championships, but I would get to nationals and I would get last place literally at at nationals. So here my mom is the single parent. She's flying me all the way to Florida from California. And I'm getting last place and not really getting anything out of it, you know? And at some point, I think she or a friend asked me, why do you do it? And I didn't have a good answer. Why do I swim? Why do I do it? Why do I get up in the morning? Why am I there every single afternoon? And my answer was sort of like, I don't know, because it's what I do. Like the same reason why I sleep every day or I eat or I drink water. It's like sort of life, right? It's what we do. So somewhere in that 14 to 15-year-old range, I decided to show up to practice. I recognized that the easiest thing for me was to get in the passenger seat of the vehicle and to be driven to my practice. And I thought that was showing up because I arrived, but I wasn't really in it. I was going through the motions, and my natural talent – would keep me at a pretty good level with my competitors, right? I'm still making national championships. But I decided how hungry I was. And I then knew that a part of that cocktail and that recipe was me putting my own, like, sweat and tears into my workouts. And when I did that, I stood on the blocks with much more conviction. It wasn't just confidence. It was ownership of my journey. And I stood on the blocks and I was like, I got this. And so when I was 15, I just missed the Olympic team by 27 one hundredths of a second. I got third. And that was the moment when I was like, okay, so that works. Like that recipe would get me real good, like real far on the British baking show. Like that's what I need to do. And I haven't won yet. Like, you know, my recipe's not fantastic yet, but I have I have the fixins for it. Now I just need to put a few spices in and and, uh, and then I'll crush it. And so that was the focus for the next four years after 15. So four years later, at age 19, I win two golds, a silver and a bronze.
0: Wow. So it made you hungry.
2: Yeah. Lit my fire. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It definitely lit a fire. There's something to be said with being okay to let your kids fail. Let your kids quit. Let your kids decide they need a break. So they reignite that fire and they come back to it with a purpose. Even now, look at your own lives, right? Parents, like, what did the pandemic do for a lot of people? It made them really look at their life and decide do I need a fire? Like, I need a change. Being stagnant in this world and sort of just going through your day zombie esque is really exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. It's really exhausting. So, when, you're, when you see your kid just going through the motions of their sport, zombie-esque, like take a little break, pull them out for a bit, go do something fun, go on vacation, try something new, eat fun foods, shake it up, and then get them back. Great in advice. Practice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. So I think there is, you know, you talked about qualifying for the Olympics four years later. I would love you to – um actually walk our listeners through that whole Olympic experience because I've heard you talk about it before. And I think there's so many lessons to be learned. It doesn't matter whether you are competing at the Olympic level, but just anyone competing and the ups and downs and the expectations you have on yourself. And so could you do that? Just walk us through like your you had four events, right?
2: Yep. I had four, well, four individual Olympics. events and a relay.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um so yeah, just share what you want but as in as much detail as you can.
2: Yeah, it's um well it was a different age, right? It was 1992. Yeah. So for anybody out there who uh can really vividly remember 1992, we didn't have internet. Zoom, zooming and podcasts were not even in the realm. Um no one had cell phones. No one had cell phones. You Kate, two people had a car phone, you know. That's it. Um, So I didn't feel social media pressure. I wasn't um, all over the world, per se, the way athletes are right now. It was old school. It was old school newspaper. It was my hometown. It was NBC triple cast, which was their new way to display the Olympic Games. But it was my own expectations of myself. And what happened was, is because I was swimming in four individual events, which was the first time any US swimmer had done that since Shirley Babishoff in 1976, Um, it it was a big deal for the story of the games. And it didn't hurt that my name was Summer and yada, yada. So... People ran with it and said, oh, four individual events in a relay, she has a chance to win five gold medals, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is so awesomely American. Um, Of course, I knew that to do that, I would have to swim out of my head. And then everyone else I was competing against would have to have a bad day. And I'm not competing against the same athlete in each of these events. So it would be like many athletes having bad days. So I knew it was very... (laughs) It was near impossible, but I did get it into my own head. Oh, maybe I could do this, you know? So first race was my 400 IM. Um, I was competing against uh, Lynn Lee and Christina Egerzegi, and I touched the wall third. I won a bronze medal. I remember being extremely excited because I broke my my hero's American record, Tracy Calkins. I won my first Olympic medal. I get out of the pool and the reporter says, you just won a bronze medal. You must be so disappointed. That's exactly what he said. It wasn't paraphrasing. You must be so disappointed. And I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. He was a former swimmer. And I i guarantee you in his ear, he was hearing from his producer, ask her if she's disappointed. And so he just yeah. asked me, you must be so disappointed. Um, I said, no, authentically. I didn't even take his question and didn't add weight to my life. I authentically know I'm thrilled. Here's why. Broke my rec- my hero's record and won a bronze medal. I went back to the, the village last, that night and my friends just wanted to feel the weight of my medal. They didn't look at the color or maybe they did and they were thrilled, but they didn't judge the color because it was bronze instead of gold. They f- just wanted to feel the weight of what they were shooting for. Like, this is why mm-hmm. I'm here. I want to win one of these. Let me feel it. That meant a lot to me that my teammates did that. Specifically, some it was a swimmer named Jeff Rouse that did it. Um, I then went on and swam a 100 butterfly. I got sixth in the 100 butterfly. It was for sure my weakest event. It was just a fun event that I made and qualified for. Um, I swam the relay in the morning. So I won a, a gold medal there. And then I swam my 200 IM, which was my favorite event. It's basically a sprint, one lap of each stroke. It's super fun and, and you never get bored. And I I went up for that race with mentally, just, I, I mentally prepared for it. I was so excited. I was fired up. I was trying to be like a little bit mean in my head, you know, I'm going to be fierce out there. And I had this going on in my head and, um, I got behind the blocks and I heard all this crazy screaming, like Americans screaming behind me and I'm in Barcelona and I turn Hmm. around. and It's a ton of my college friends And it was so hot in Barcelona. They had written go USA all over their bodies and they were sweating so bad. It was running down their face. And I immediately switched out of fierce, mean summer, which doesn't even exist to back to friendly, fun, fired up summer. And so I got on those blocks. I swam my heart out. I swam such a great race. It was my favorite race by far. And I touched the wall. I fought to the very end and I got a silver and Lynn Lee touched the wall before me. She broke the world record. I again broke my hero, Tracy Calkins, American record, and won a silver. I get out of the pool. The reporter says, you just won a silver. You must be so disappointed. And then I went back, and I think the weight of it all hit me. And I started to cry in my coach's arms. I was really emotional, and I don't even know why, but I was just exhausted, mentally mostly. I was exhausted and I still had my best race to go, so I sleep that night. I get up the next day. I, I sort of waddle through the prelims and qualify for finals. And I'm standing behind the blocks for the the final warm up of my last day of competition, which was the last my best race. And I was laughing with one of my friends, and my coach comes up to me and says, watching me laughing, says, "I don't think you're taking this seriously." And I just thought to myself, "Oh my god, no one gets it. No one gets it." And that's sort of what we saw at these last games. If you couldn't hear Simone Manuel or so Simone Biles say, "I need a mental break," then you aren't listening mm. with your whole heart, because you can't possibly get the pressure, and you can't judge the pressure. These are hyper-focused athletes that are putting so much pressure on themselves. Remember, I don't have social media, I don't have twenty-four-seven news channels. I just have my Sacramento Bee, the Press Tribune, and NBC, and myself. So I warm up, I dive in, I warm up, and I think, oh, I'm going to need to like figure myself out before this race. So I'm walking around. It was an outdoor venue, but we had this hallway on the inside, I'm walking around this hallway, and I find this random bathroom. I mean, we actually had security in Barcelona, but I find this random bathroom. I woke. I go into the bathroom by myself, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I have a conversation. And I say, "Why do you do this?" Remember that conversation that my mom had with me Mm -hmm. when I was 14. Why do you do this? And the answer was really simple. I do it for myself. I do it for myself. It's not a selfish answer. It's very direct. I do it for myself. Every single day in that practice at at you know 6 a.m. till 8 a.m., I'm doing this for myself to achieve my goals. And then I said, who loves you? And it was my mom and my dad and my brother and my aunt who were there, my friends and my teammates and my coaches. And with that answer, I think I just I just got this like overwhelming, it was like a hug of all hugs of just life is gonna be okay either way. So I do this for myself, go out there and do it for yourself. And everyone's going to love you no matter what. So I stood on the blocks. I looked at the banner on the right-hand side that said Barcelona 92 with the Olympic rings. I thought to myself, this is my last time in this pool at at this Olympic Games in Barcelona. Give it everything you have. The race was so far from perfect. It was very unusual for me. I was fifth at the first wall. I'm usually well in front of everyone. I was maybe third at the second wall. The third wall, I was tied for third. And then the last lap was just guts. It was guts and going back to the basics. It was, it was honestly, Rowena, because you know swimming so well, it was just get your arms out of the water. It was a 200 butterfly. So get your arms out of the water. Get your arms out of the water. And then I touched the wall. And I turn around and I see one next to my name. And I was so relieved. I was so relieved. And honestly, that's the only, it's not a regret, but people often ask me, would I change anything? I wish that I could have just gotten rid of all of that excess completely to where when I touched the wall, I had that intense, pure joy of the moment. But instead, because of all the pressure, I felt relief, like, Oh, thank God I did it. You know? And that's the only difference.
0: I hear every gold medalist say that. My sister
1: said the same thing. Oh, beautiful walkthrough. That was amazing. I really like felt that. (laughs) You know what? What I think that would be awesome for you to talk about, because I've heard you talk about this and I think it would be really beneficial for our listeners. And maybe this actually did help you in that moment is that You had a coach that taught you to learn to celebrate. Is that right? So talk about that and like what people, you know, especially our young listeners, could start doing and start implementing until their training, um, similar to what you did. And is that something that helped you, you feel like in that moment? To, or get yes. to that
2: moment, I guess most anybody I tell this these stories to my coach that you're referring to is Richard quick um he has passed away but he was phenomenal and uh, and April and I have uh for everybody who's listening we have a connection because her sister is an Olympic skier and my my uh right, April well, are you an Olympic skier as well no I did not make it okay <laughs> you're Julie, I was serious. the best support crew though yes <laughs> Well, that means something that means something. So uh, but my husband is an Olympic skier. And so April and I have that in common. And when I met Eric, he was my husband, he was still skiing. In fact, he skied all the way up until our son was a little over a year old. Um, And I would say to him, Oh, I wish that you could have had Richard quick as your coach. Um, I firmly believe that a great coach does not have to be great at the sport they're coaching. They have to be able to inspire and they have to be able to um, make their their coaches, whatever their athletes make their athletes believe that the impossible is possible. And that's what he would do with me. So uh, part of that is physically reacting to that moment of when the impossible is possible. And so every Friday he would have us swim into the wall and we would practice as if we broke a world record, won our gold medal, won an NCAA championship, whatever it was, that moment that we wanted, we had to reenact that and do it. In that moment as a 20 something, there were moments when we're like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing, but it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And I'm glad you guys brought that up because I do want to share that with the ski team. I think it's fun, it would be fun to see these youth skiers skiing through the finish and then just practicing that awesome World Cup victory moment, however they want to do it. You know, Don't be afraid to celebrate and have fun. It's not a, it's not a cocky thing. Even in your life, we need to get better at taking compliments. We need to just our reaction should be, thank you as opposed to, Oh no, I just, I just got this super cheap. I don't know. It's been in my closet forever. I just put it on. Just go ahead and say, thank you. And like, take it in for a moment. And that's the art of practicing your celebration is taking a moment mm. to practice at your best, what you're going to do when you get to celebrate yourself.
0: Mm, the art of practicing your celebration. Yeah. Beautiful. I think this ties into um, one of the favorite things I've heard that you've talked about your dad saying all the time. he I've heard you say that he used to love quoting Mae West, whose motto was life is a party. Only most damn fools don't know that
2: they're at it. Is that, did I quote right? It's close. Life's a party. Most damn fools don't know they're invited. There we go. Yeah. 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 Yeah, He, he, um, he didn't know anything about swimming. All he knew about swimming was that it took up in his eyes way too much time. And by that it was, he didn't get to have more fun with us. So when we occasionally, and often actually, we would get a, you know, message on our answering machine saying, the pool's broken, no practice today. And you would think I'd be the one being like, yeah, it was my dad in the background. And we would immediately go to Scandia and we would, we would drive the race cars and we would do something fun. So that's sort of going back to what's the role of the parent and what is the role of the coach? Parents, you mm-hmm. got to give these kids a childhood. And you have got to find and carve out fun times. If you see them getting weighted down by the pressures of their sport, they already have pressures from school. Add some fun in their life and make them know and feel that it's just, it's going to be okay. It is going, we're not missing practice every single day, but when the pools shut down, let's go have fun right? Yeah. Let's not try to, let's not duct tape something together and go to the gym and work out, take that moment and go have fun.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. I love it. I feel like that is a really common thing that People that we interview, they often say it has to be fun. You have to love the sport. You have to find the joy. And if you find a moment when you're not having fun, go back to having fun. That's been a really common um, thing that all the athletes have said. So I love that you shared that. You know, something I think that you have done an amazing job with is you know, taking what some might perceive as a failure and even when you experienced it, I don't think you ever even felt it like it was a failure. But, you know, I know we talked about it a little bit, but going back to when you were 15 and didn't qualify for the Olympics, but instead of feeling sorry for yourself, really taking that and that's what really not making it really propelled you into um You know, making it for the next Olympics and doing so well. So, how you um, can, how you can do that? You know, taking um, a situation like that and kind of turning around and not being like poor me. And um, because I love that about you that you that you never even like cried about it. Right? You just like were like, all right, I got this.
2: I didn't. And thanks for bringing that up, April. I do feel like, and and I completely understand that I was a 15 year old and I shocked myself even making it into the finals. So it's different if like, this is your last shot at the Olympic games. And once again, you get third place and you're not making the team. I get that that's a different like sort of devastation in life. But for me in this moment, I touched the wall third and it was validation that I could actually compete against what I considered were the most gnarly swimmers on the face of the earth. They're so much better than me. They're so much taller than me. They're so much stronger. They're so much tougher. They spit in the water. What is going on? Like they were just everything about it. They were fierce and tough, and I was not yet. And then I swam that race and I touched the wall third, and I thought, oh, I can do this. So I didn't even know to feel bad or feel sorry until later when I saw the race and I saw how far in front I was with like 25 meters to go. Um, and so I was a little, I was a little pissed off by that, which is really good to be pissed off. I always say to, to parents and to athletes, you can't, you can't teach your kid to be competitive. I really don't think you can. I think that your kid comes out of the womb as a competitive child or someone who's just like, eh, no big deal. I didn't care. You know, it didn't really bother me. But those kids that you see who are behind the blocks and they are pissed off at their race and they are pissed off because they didn't win. Yes, there's a there's a polite way to respond to disappointment. But you have to nurture that competitive spirit in a way. So you teach them All of this is fine, right? I want you to cry it out. I want you to be pissed off. I want you to be frustrated. You go do that. And I'm going to give you like two minutes. Go do it over there. Be frustrated whatever, And then make something of the moment, right? If you care that much, come back over, talk to your coach, figure out what went wrong, and then use that in practice for the next X number of months until your next swim meet or your next race. And that's the way you're productive with your competitive kid. But I always say to parents, don't tell your kids they can't emotionally respond to a race. Let them do that because if they're competitive, it just might be real different than you, right? And they were born that way. And it's a beautiful thing when they really care about whether they won or they lost. And so now do they care about getting better? Do they care about putting the work in to see the results that they want? And that's, that's the, you know, heart to heart moment that you can have. I absolutely love that. You mentioned that it, uh,
0: April and I talk about this all the time with our kids, um, mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the just being born competitive and it's a strength and Mm -hmm. not to crush it. I feel like so many people crush it these days. Teachers crush it. Sometimes coaches even crush it. Um, So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I actually, it leads me to, a book that you wrote, which I only just realized you wrote, and I wish I got my hands on it years ago. Um, It's coming in the mail. It's champions are raised, not born. I know, you know, we're probably talking about a lot of stuff that's in there right now, but I wanted to quote you a little bit from that book because I think it's absolute gold. Um, You talk about the different standard of success, not Let's talk about the difference, you know, not one who beats all the pros before he's a teenager, who grows up to command an audience of millions, who's worth a billion dollars before he's 30, but let's talk about a child who consistently gives all she's got with what she's been given, a child who feels capable and enthusiastic, no matter what the challenge, a child who arrives at adulthood with a skill or a sport or a talent that will give her satisfaction for the rest of her life, a child who does what she sets out to do because she doesn't quit a child for whom satisfaction is in the doing not the getting Mm -hmm. um can you talk about maybe how your parents what they did right to in foster that in you yeah well
2: they put it I mean in a very polite way they put it all on me it was Mm. um what do you want and it consistently goes back to that question why are you doing it what do you want Mm. out of it There was never a, we are competing in these events this weekend. Do you see, do you know how some parents are like, yeah, we are going to be, we are going to be swimming the 200 butterfly, the 200 IM, the 400 IM. Are we really doing that? Because, (laughs) and that was something that my mom knew so well because she was a swimmer. And so she knew how hard the 200 butterfly was. She knew how hard the 400 IM was. And, um, So she validated how hard it was, but also she never coddled me. So when I was bummed out by a race and I didn't swim well, she wasn't going to blame it on something else or validate me pointing a finger at somebody else. I did it once when I was like, we were just talking about it when she was here. I did it once when I was like eight years old and I got out of the water. I did not see that there was a swimmer ahead of me, like in lane eight. And at this point I was kind of winning everything quite easily, yada, yada, how the story goes when you're super young. And I touched the wall and I thought I had won, but I didn't. And I got out of the water and I said to her, those timers are wrong. And she was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. You just didn't see her in lane eight. And I quickly started laughing too, like realized that's the most ridiculous thing that a kid could say that the timers were wrong when the, like everyone saw that this girl beat me. But I use that with my own kids now. Like we were just at my daughter's horse show and not the same example. The girls weren't saying, Oh, the dressage judges had it out for us, or they were mean, or they just didn't like me. But there was a lot of that sort of floating around and they were coming together. And when those voices get together, then they become louder and people think it a bit more. And all of a sudden, you don't own your dressage test, right? It wasn't you. It was those judges were really bad. And I just looked mm-hmm. at them and I said, was your dressage test perfect? Like, was it a really good test? And they were, they all said no. And I go, well, if the judge was bad, Who cares, right? Your test wasn't great. You have so many areas to improve upon. So just basically screw the score, right? Who cares about the judging? You know, you can be better. If you got done with your dressage test and you were like, I was perfect. It's the best dressage test I've ever done in my entire life. And you got the worst score? Now you have a leg to stand on. Now you can go that sucks, but in my heart I knew I did everything right. But not one of them said that they had a great test, not one of them. And they quickly just changed their tune and they were like, "Yeah, you're right." So that's the difference, right? What did my parents do? My dad was the party. My dad was always there to like take me to do fun things. That was kind of his job. My mom was sort of the one that just reminded me that it's my responsibility. It's a wonderful position to be in, to be responsible for your life, to be responsible for your journey, to be responsible for this gold medal, right? Like I won that gold medal with the help of many, many people. But when you're in charge of your journey, you get to own even that moment. And so... Uh, that ownership is very powerful, but it can be equally scary. It's just the same as if some kids don't like to give it everything they have, because if they give it everything they have and they lose, it's so scary because then like what happens next time? Am I never going to win? That's the way they see it. So black and white. So some kids are just so afraid to really go for it. I think it happens often in ski racing, right? Because if you fall, that's it. There's your day. So why should I really go for it if I'm going to fall? I'll just give it like 80% and make sure I finish the race. But you're never going to feel that perfect race if you don't go for it, you know, just once. Just try it just once. Mm -hmm. And so equally, so it's scary to sort of own your journey because you can't point it at the judges. You can't point it at that timer and blame them. You have to own it and you have to own all of it, but it's so powerful and awesome when you do it that way. And specifically, I say this to, you know, young girls in youth sport, because there is so much conversation about the power and the. The balance of power between a male coach and a female athlete, and I'm I'm consistently reminding these parents and these young girls, own your sport, own your workout, own your warm up. You can be your own coach at times. That way, you have the power. Your coach can guide you. Your coach can reinforce, but you need to have the power. And when you have the power, you don't need the validation. Validation helps you, but you don't need the validation. You have the power. Wow. Amazing. I, you know, I think what,
1: what, one of the things that you just kind of did there that I just want to kind of reiterate, because I think it's like magic is that you didn't tell the girls what they were doing wrong. You just asked the right questions and let them come back to you with the right answer. It's like the answer you were, it's like the things you wanted to say to them, but you let them come up with it. And that's just, I love that because, um, that's exactly what we want. We want them to, to figure that out. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was amazing. That was awesome. I actually have a, um, a funny question. Um, since you and your husband were both, um, such highly competitive athletes, do you guys compete with each other?
2: (laughs) It's so funny. We used to, and like Eric and I would go for a run, and I'm a better runner than him, but he's a better, better sprinter than I am. So we'd be running along, and I'd be running at his pace, you know, and then he always at the very end wants to sprint. Like, let's just do a sprint at the end to there. And we would get so competitive with this sprint because he would start out sprinting, and I would start out a little bit slower. And then I would sprint and beat him right at the last second because he had started sprinting too fast. He's just a pure sprinter. So yes, we occasionally, we occasionally compete. We used to compete in like cards and things like that. But now my husband has this awesome 13-year-old boy that wants to beat him in everything. And Eric will not let him beat him in anything until he can beat him. Authentically and for real everything now from that ball to backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Tetherball, smash ball, um, cro- like croquet. I don't know all these other lawn games. No, until spider beats Eric officially without any, um, you know, easy route, then, you know, he's not beating Eric. So now the competition has shifted to my son, which is awesome. So good.
0: Do you think your competitive nature, I think I know the answer to this, but has, I mean, you've had an incredible career outside your sport. Do you think your competitive nature has served you in the world of business and television and everything you do?
2: I do. I don't, I don't know if it's my competitive nature. I think, um, if you, if you're describing competitive nature as what I was talking about Mm -hmm. with that champion attitude of just consistency, showing up and never quitting, right? Then yes, it absolutely has. Um, People often asked me after I had kids, how did being an Olympic athlete help you prepare to be a parent? And I would say, Mm -hmm. not at all. Not at all. I mean, from day one, I wrote a birth plan with Sky, who was my first, I wrote a birth plan. I mean, it's great. Anybody who's pregnant right now, go write your birth plan and try to plan it out how perfectly you want it. But then quickly you're going to realize this is not your birth. This is your kid's birth. And at that moment Mm -hmm. with my daughter, I realized, oh, she's got her own plan. I'm kind of just along for her ride. And it's starting right now. So, um, yeah, I think you, you cannot push them. You cannot force them. I'm sorry, I'm switching from your question into like how did oh, being a Olympic love champion it. make a good parent yeah, because it's it doesn't. Perfect. Um, Olympic athletes are very programmed. We're very focused. We have these times to work out. We know we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do that. To try and get your your offspring, your wonderful, created, amazing kids to be mini-use just does not work out. And it's actually not healthy, Right. So what I've had to do is back off and watch her make different decisions than what I would make. And she's so rad. And she'll come up to me and say, mom, I am not you. I am not going to be an Olympian. And I don't want to be your kind of an Olympian. I have different sports. I have a different way of getting it done. I will get it done, but I'm going to do it my way. And I back off right? So not an Olympic attitude of like, so highly focused type A, getting everything done early, everything, all my ducks in a row. So yeah, that's the hardest part about being a parent is sitting back and letting your kid become the adult they want to be.
0: You know, when I first spoke to your daughter and just talked to her a little bit about life, I remember thinking, I want summer to be my parenting coach because I was in awe of this child, like her wisdom, how she spoke, her confidence, her eloquence, and I was like, and I could, I can attest to what you just said. Like she is her own confident, solid person. Um, so I think this episode, summer, is going to be, I mean, probably more for the parents even than the kids. I'm just
2: so much gold in there. Um, I have to you. One of the things- Really quickly, one of the things Eric and I did is um, I never, I never spoke and I don't speak to any kid like their kid. I just speak to them like they're an adult. And if they don't understand a word, I explain what the word is. Um, Mm -hmm. And I never took my kid to a kid dentist. We always went to a real dentist. And I just – all that sort of like baby talk and stuff like that, I just – I wasn't really into, which is to each his own. But I say that because I really, really wanted my kids to have that confidence, right, and that ownership of power. Um, It was very important to me on every level so that when we had adults come over for dinner and they didn't have kids – I would say to them, before you leave the dinner table, you have to ask at least three engaging questions. So an engaging question is cannot be answered by a yes or no. Um, and they would do that. And you know what they do now? And I just was walking with my friend just yesterday and she said, do you know, I love your son. I don't even have to have Macy in the car with me. He'll come up to my window and he just starts talking to me. And he asks me how my day is going and what I did today. So it has extended. And that just, it goes a long way with their communication skills with adults to be able to have the guts to ask these questions. And maybe it will translate down the road to being able to stand up for themselves in asking or or challenging or gently pushing, whatever it is, to stand up for what they feel is right. Um, Amazing. I
1: can't wait to start implementing that with my kids. That is gold. I would love for you to share with us
2: what does a champion mean to you? Well, it's sort of what Rowena already said. Champion to me is consistency. I don't believe that a champion is a one-moment title. Um, Yes, you can win a championship, and therefore you are a champion, But I just look at the word champion more as life as opposed to an event in my heart. So it's the consistency of greatness. And greatness can be kindness. Greatness can be uh, helping others. Greatness can be intelligence. Greatness can be athleticism. It can be culinary greatness. Um, it's, It's the art of giving back in a real consistent way.
0: One of my favorite answers yet, Sama. I love this. Um, I have, I'm curious about one thing I've read about you and maybe it's too long of a story, but apparently you were fired by the president.
2: Oh, well, yes. So before he was president, he was the host okay. of Celebrity Prentice and yeah, oh. I, I had the honor of being fired by then Donald Trump and, uh, Yeah. So that, again, goes back to do something that scares you. I don't know if I would do a reality show again, but it meant a lot to me to get my charity's name to say it on uh, national television. And um, April, Julia actually climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for Right to Play. So Right to Play was my charity, and all I wanted to do was win a, a project, be project manager, and then win, and then get to say in the boardroom when he says, what was your charity, to say Right to Play on national television so that people would go online and see what it's all about and donate. And I did that, but then I made the mistake of being project manager a second time. And reality shows are so crazy. I mean, nuts, Cook crazy. Uh so I realized in that moment and this is really funny that you bring this up because it does go back to reality shows are not real life real life and it was in this moment that I realized why they had told me athletes never do well on celebrity apprentice and they don't do well because athletes are so used to owning what they did wrong right and that's another sign of a true champion I believe is I could have been better. Here's what I could have done as opposed to, you know, our defense did not play well and our coaching staff did not have a great day, right? You take ownership on what you could have done better. And, and that's what you say. And when everyone is doing that on the team, then you have a championship team because it's such a healthy way to get better. So I realized, oh, when I didn't win my project, I'm going to have to throw people under the bus. And we don't do that. So I just didn't do it. And then you're fired, came out of his mouth. And I was like, ah, okay. Um, an, an amazing experience, sort of. <laughs> G- good riddance yeah exactly
1: <laughs> i actually really love what you just brought up though through that story because i hope that my son doesn't get um, too mad listening to us because i feel like i'm gonna throw him under the bus but he is young so i will <laughs> give him that because he's learning but he had a baseball game the other day and he and they lost and he was feeling and he played a great game uh-huh. but there were some players that didn't and he left that feeling like they should have played better and i'm like no you're a team that's not what you do you you know just kind of like exactly what what you're talking about. And I know that you weren't in a team sport, but it's amazing. You still have that, the way to look at, you know, that the whole team spirit and being a champion and being a champion team. So I love that you just said that because it really isn't about blaming anybody else. It's really about, did you do your best? How could you have even done better? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, thank you for sharing that.
2: You see it in pro sports a lot, right? Like you see the chemistry of a team and a good chemistry within a team. And a championship environment within a team never is a blame game. Um, but mm-hmm. everybody's got to buy into that, right? And you'll see that you can have like little cancers on the team who are pointing fingers at other people, even if they've take their, taken their own ownership and they're pointing. But it just it doesn't work to point fingers. Everybody's got to figure out how to get better, collectively come together as a team. So you see it. When a team like, for example, the Buffalo Bills, when they are clicking on all cylinders, but most importantly, they're taking ownership for things they didn't do well, sky's the limit.
1: I love it. Do you have um, anything that really helped you as an athlete? Um, I know you talked a little bit about just celebrating celebrating the moment, but like visualization, affirmations, like any mindset things that really helped you as an athlete that um, that our listeners could implement into, into their into their practice or whatever competitive competitions.
2: I always wrote my goals down. I did not need a lot of details within my goals. I just needed my splits. There are some people who need a ton of stuff written down, but I always wrote them down. I put them on my bathroom mirror because when you're brushing your teeth, you have three minutes to look and read them over. And the more you see them, there's the act of writing them down. I think it's a dream when it's in your head. It becomes a bit more of a reality when you say it out loud, and then it becomes a goal when you write it down. Um, so when you can see what you've written down every day, it, just, uh, it amplifies that even more. You begin to, to feel like you can do it, believe you can do it. I used to visualize quite a bit uh, because I would get really nervous like the week leading up to my big meet. But I had a deal with myself, and I think it's important for kids, for young athletes to recognize you can wear yourself out with visualization. So if you cannot calm yourself down and relax enough, like for example, to get out of the starting blocks, right? Like you have to calm, like you'll be sitting there visualizing and you can't even get off the blocks or you're trying to just make a turn and you're so caught up in energy. You're, you're struggling visualizing this. You got to let it go. You will wear yourself out if you visualize too much. So get yourself in the right spot. Uh, spot in your house, spot in environment wise, um, that's quiet where you can really be calm and you can authentically visualize. Um, otherwise it, it'll wear you out. Gosh, thank you. I've never heard
0: anyone explain that before, but it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I felt that when I was a kid trying, um, um, right. Summer, this has been, I think I'm going to listen to this interview over and over myself just for my life and my goals. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Um, And I know it's wisdom that's come through your own journey to self-mastery and it continues, right? I love seeing you on Instagram and talking about your goals and what you're doing in life. And guys, um, go find her for Inspiration Daily. She's Summer Sanders with an underscore at the end on Instagram. Um, go watch the film Jerry Maguire and see if you can spot her. Summer's in that I'm film. The,
2: I'm on the I'm on the cutting room floor. Because I've got to tell you that story oh. because it goes back okay. to Australia. yes. So I had I had just missed the Olympic team in 1996. I made a, a small comeback to try to make the team, and I had missed it. And so they said, "Would you like to go to?" I think we were shooting it in San Francisco. So uh, it was a scene where he was supposed to be fired at the end of the scene where he's walking through this giant office space and he starts out and he there's a football player that he says hello to. So they do the whole scene. So I had to be there. I was the last athlete before he goes into his office where he was to be fired. So I was there the whole day. They do the whole scene, but they're focused on this first part. Okay. Then that first part goes and now we go to the middle and they do the whole scene and it was Rebecca Lobo in the middle. And so they finish with that. And it was kind of about that time when I was like, are we done? And he's like, oh, no. And when I say I'm having a conversation with Tom Cruise, are we done? And he's like, no. And and he's like, but you know, a thing or two about long days, because he goes, my wife at the time was Nicole Kidman. My wife is a swimmer. And of course, I was like, she's an Aussie. Of course she's a swimmer. Um, And so uh, he said to me, we had this conversation about swimming. And he said, would you like a line in the movie? And I was like, sure. At that time, I had no idea what getting a line in a movie means. But when you get a line in the movie, that means you're in the movie. No matter if you're on the cutting room floor or not, you have a line, it goes into SAG, you get residuals and all of this. So my line you ask was Jerry, I hear you're getting married. Congratulations. And then he was to go and then he went into his office. But that entire scene didn't happen because he didn't get fired in his office. He got fired at a cafe, remember? And then he comes back into that office space and is like, "Who's coming with me?" And Renee Zellweger grabs the fish and they go. Um, but yes, so I get my little residual che- checks of like a forty-five for when it plays on pay-per-view in some random town. Um, yeah, so it's hilarious. So I'm actually not in the movie. Don't go like stressing yourself out and try to find me. But I still have the script, which is one of my prized possessions. And I love that I got to experience a day of filming a movie such a fun story so rad
1: i've always wanted to be an actress now i'm like oh maybe i should have <laughs> it's not so too late. late right it's not too late not too $1. late
0: twenty five. oh summer thank you thank you for your time this has been amazing our this little is tribe's really gonna get so much from it
2: thank you thanks thanks for having me you guys you guys are both beautiful and wonderful keep up the good work oh thank you yeah.